0: Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine, but you know, they've they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100 One of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts a simple number. Here it is, Lot 546 or Lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world. And selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines, earning Cameron Hughes wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold, it was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock, all these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name. The guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511. And you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. This is Jefferson Smith. I am sitting in for Tom Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I am honored to be here. A story Tip O'Neill used to tell. A young woman working in the United States Senate dining room was called over by a man who was sitting down and asked for another pat of butter. And the young woman said, sir, I'm sorry, uh, just one pat of butter per customer. The man says, I'm a United States senator. I'm asking you for another pat of butter. He said, "Oh, sir, I- I'm terribly sorry, just one pat of butter per customer. She says, ma'am, I am chairman of appropriations, Billions of dollars flow through my fingers. I'm asking you for another pat of butter. Sir, I'm I'm terribly sorry. Just, Just one pat of butter per customer. Now, see here, I'm a United States Senator President's quake in my presence. I'm asking you for another pat of butter, sir. Just one per customer. Now, listen here. I wield tremendous power in this country. I can bring people up on hearings. I can spend federal dollars. I make federal rules and I make international leaders quake in my presence. Who the heck do you think you are? Well, sir, I'm the one with the butter. Now, why do I tell that story? Mostly just because I like it, but also because it reminds us that in democracy, we are supposed to be the ones with the butter. And right now, I think too many Americans are feeling downright butterless. Butterless, I say. On today's show, we'll be trying to torture that analogy further by spreading a bit more butter, by trying to build a movement where we can, in fact, have a democracy. And I say this not for ratings, because that's not ultimately how I'm evaluated. I say this not to be blustery, because bluster for its own sake is boring. I say it because I'm not hearing it said enough the thing is at stake right now is in fact democracy. Today, we are going to be talking about the Trump NATO shout out to Sean for coining it. Trump going after NATO in his visit to Europe. We are going to be talking about asking the question of who is the worst president of all time. And before you think, you know, the answer, Remember that Warren Harding was really, really bad. We are going to be asking the big question on the Supreme Court. And in fact, several questions. Why did Brett Kavanaugh get selected? Why did this president and why does Mitch McConnell think that Brett Kavanaugh should be seated on a lifetime appointment under Article Three of the United States Constitution on the highest court in the land? And what are grounds for him not to be appointed? And I will argue disturbingly that the answers to those two questions are hauntingly overlapping. That the reasons for Brett Kavanaugh to be selected are also the grounds for him not to be appointed. I had the privilege of joining you on Monday. I made my guess that Kavanaugh would be the pick. And not because I had a great crystal ball. I didn't think Donald Trump was going to be the president. But because I looked at a few factors. One, he's on the Federal Society list. He was among those that had been vetted to move the court significantly to the right. When they did the analysis, one analysis of how to break down judges on where they fall on a political party judicial spectrum, He lands about as far to the right on that spectrum. And every time I say spectrum, I want to remind myself that we not victimize our own brains to think that's how the world should be organized. But he was located on that spectrum in about the same place, just a Scotian from Clarence Thomas. And they would be the two most conservative, the two most right wing justices on the Supreme Court. And yes, that means to the right of Samuel Leto. That means to the right of Neil Gorsuch if you didn't know that there was space to the right of them, I would be sympathetic to your confusion, but he would be located there. So one, he had the right judicial politics. Two, I said, well, he had said the right magic words when it came to Roe versus Wade. When he was, because remember they need all their votes. John McCain is in Arizona. They need all of their votes. Susan Collins is one of their votes. Lisa Murkowski is another one of their votes. To get those votes, Susan Collins already made clear what it takes. What it takes is for the nominee during confirmation hearings and prior, because it's too late, by the way, after confirmation hearings, Article 3 of the Constitution says the only thing that can happen is be impeached. That during the confirmation hearings and prior, the magic words akin to it is settled law that Roe versus Wade is in fact the precedent of the Supreme court. She made clear, did Susan Collins, that they could not be openly hostile. She didn't say they couldn't be privately hostile, but they couldn't be openly hostile to a woman's right to choose. And specifically to Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And we know that Brett Kavanaugh, was interviewed, had a confirmation hearing when he was appointed to the D.C. Circuit. And during that confirmation hearing, he said a version of the magic words, if confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, I would follow Roe v. Wade faithfully and fully. It is the law of the land. That last few words are mine. Chuck Schumer questioned him. He said, do you consider Roe v. Wade to be an abomination? Do you consider yourself to be a judicial nominee? Like the president said, he was going to nominate people in the mold of Scalia and Thomas. Kavanaugh. Senator, on the question of Roe v. Wade, if confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, I would follow Roe v. Wade faithfully and fully. That would be binding precedent on the court. It has been decided by the Supreme Court. Schumer, I asked you your own opinion. Kavanaugh. I'm saying if I were confirmed to D.C. Circuit, Senator, I would follow it. It's been reaffirmed many times, including in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Schumer, I understand, but what is your opinion? You're not on the bench yet. You've talked about these issues in the past to other people, I'm sure. Kavanaugh. The Supreme Court has repeatedly, Senator, and I don't think it would be appropriate for me to give a personal view of that case. Schumer, okay, you are not going to answer the question. So he gave a version of the magic words. But third, and so therefore I thought he could get confirmed. Third answer, third reason I thought it would be Kavanaugh, is something that we are going to talk about with a guest in about 15 minutes. And that is about a law Review article he wrote about the scope of presidential power. Now, when predicting, if you haven't read the article, haven't read articles about that law Review article, you might look at Kavanaugh's background to guess, to surmise, to posit what he was likely to opine. And knowing if you knew that he worked for Ken Starr, and was Ken Starr's attack dog preparing vicious documents to attack President Bill Clinton, including the most salacious details in legal documents and making all arguments that all of these things should be part of an investigation on a sitting president of the United States. Not on whether an election had been rigged, not on whether a president was in cahoots with a foreign power, not whether there had been massive billion-dollar-scale money laundering, but about whether there'd been a fair and a president had lied about it and he had been vicious in his attacks. One might think, well, he probably wrote an article to justify how hard he went after Bill Clinton and how presidents have to be held to account and they are not above the law and they need to be investigated if there are grounds for investigation. And if that were your surmise, if that were your posit, if that were your hypothesis, I would probably agree with you. If in fact, I hadn't known the large article and we will talk more about its details. But basically what it says is spoiler alert. presidents above the law. The president's job is so important that they should not be subject to an investigation. And I looked at those for reasons. I said, well, bingo, bingo, bingo. He's going to be able to maintain, he being Donald Trump this time, he's going to be able to maintain the red wall because the Federal Society likes the guy. He's to the right of everybody but Clarence Thomas. Susan Collins might be able to do what she did with Neil Gorsuch and hold her nose and vote yes or vote yes with enthusiasm, dodging the question of whether she was significantly involved in the overturning of Roe versus Wade because he had said it was settled law. By the way, the reason I say that's not enough at this point is he is not being appointed to the D.C. Circuit. What he said is This is the law of the land because I work with the Supreme Court. I am under the Supreme Court. I follow Supreme Court precedent. But if you are on the Supreme Court, you only follow Supreme Court precedent if you want to. As was said, all I mean by law is what a judge will do. And he will be a judge in the position of reversing the thing. And therefore his personal opinion now matters more than it did when he was being appointed at DC circuit. And that third one to me was a kicker because how much would Donald Trump love a Supreme court an appointee that he appointed who was in the room discussing it with other justices who might be selected to write the opinion who would very least be one of the votes to decide whether this president would be held to account, whether there would in fact be an investigation with full power and full breadth to reach the bottom of this dangerous, disturbing pit. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. I am Jefferson Smith. The call in number is 202-808-9925. We welcome your phone calls. There's one other thing that I missed though. And I'm going to talk about that stuff that I missed right after this break. This is the Tom Hartman show. I'm Jefferson Smith, you're you, we're welcoming your calls, appreciate you for being here. Hey team, how you doing? This is Jefferson Smith. Also, the Tom Hartman show. Thanks for joining us again. When we were discussing this on Monday prior to the announcement of Brett Kavanaugh to the court, I during the show landed on my prediction. I didn't have it prior, I landed on it during the show. And one of the reasons is because I had already been aware of his testimony when he was testifying for confirmation. the D.C. Circuit, and he had used magic words that might be enough to be sheep's clothing to get Susan Collins' vote. Another reason was because, well, he was on the list, and he was the one Ivy League guy on the list. Now the court is entirely, again, populated by Yale and Harvard graduates. It is the third fact, however, that when I learned, it became really clear to me that he'd be the guy. And I wasn't sure, but I thought and written the very next day, well, maybe written prior, published the very next day, an article by John Nichols on that third point. I am reading the title. Rhett Kavanaugh once argued that a sitting president should be above the law. The author of that article in The Nation is John Nichols. John Nichols joins us now. Mr. Nichols, thank you for joining us, and how are you doing? Well, I'm glad to be with you. And I
1: don't think we could be talking about a more important topic today. I, I think that Brett Kavanaugh is the most dangerous nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court in modern history. Why? Precisely because of the things that you're talking about here. And precisely because of his background uh, as an acolyte of Dick Cheney and Karl Rove, key player in the Bush White House, but also in the Bush B. Gore Fight back in 2000 to claim the presidency uh, in that Florida recount struggle, Uh, but also because of his rights. I mean, this is a guy who has been explicit in saying that he thinks the Congress of the United States should pass a law that exempts sitting presidents from criminal investigations, prosecutions. I mean, obviously that's very relevant uh, to Donald Trump and his inner circle at this point. But once, also someone who, if you read uh, his writings, not just uh, from 2009 in a Minnesota Law Review uh, article, but, but much more broadly, has an expansive view of the presidency that can only be described as imperial and that really realizes the great fear of the founders of the American experiment, who indicated that they did not want a president to be a king for four years. They didn't want a president. Who could take office and, at least during his or her tenure, uh, dismiss or disregard the duties and responsibilities and the accountability of the citizen? Presidents weren't supposed to be so far above us that they could not be held to account. Kavanaugh clearly believes, as I think Donald Trump believes, that presidents should have all sorts of special protections and, frankly, an incredibly expansive view of how they will occupy their offices. That's very dangerous as as an idea, in my opinion, but even more so it's dangerous if that would become a, a central premise on the Supreme Court of the United States.
2: So before we get to his Law Review article and his talking about presidential power, and importantly, when he's talking about presidential power, he does not extend that to the power of the federal bureaucracy to protect rights other than property rights. He does argue for, in his writings and in his opinions, limited Chevron deference, limited deference to decisions made by the executive branch with respect to regulations. He has written, though, in favor of a broad set of powers for the president as a person, as, a, as an elected king. Before we get into the details of that, though, I want to get to the way that you opened, which is that you thought it mattered. Then after that, you said that you gave a little bit of his background. I want to start with that very first principle. Why does it matter that we talk about this? Might sound like a stupid question, but if they've got the votes to confirm, why does it matter that we discuss Kavanaugh, discuss the Supreme Court at this point?
1: Well, because uh, I think that the system of checks and balances is absolutely essential uh, to the functioning of this republic. I mean, if we allow the system of checks and balances to be undermined, as I think we already have, I think Congress has become largely dysfunctional. I think the courts have become far more activists, conservative judicial activists uh, in recent decades. So we've seen a lot of the diminishing of that system of checks and balances. But if we, we allow it to be severely undermined, especially in a period where Donald Trump is president, we run the risk of, of really redefining our sense of how America operates, whether presidents can be checked and balanced when they do wrong. Not merely by Congress, but by the legal process, by lawsuits, by uh, challenges to their executive authority, which we we see
2: a lot of, and, and we historically have seen a lot of. So I I also, I,
1: I get I, their expansive view of what a president can do in, in times
2: of war. So I asked a slightly different I asked a slightly different question. Let me make it a multiple choice. Why okay. is it Why is it worth our time to discuss that? Is it a because the Supreme Court matters generally, and that checks and balances matter generally? Is it b because this appointment could in fact be blocked? Is it c because we need a movement to be educated about the importance of courts, because the right wing has been more motivated about the in elections, motivated to vote and not to vote based on the selection of courts. Is it, is it D, to influence the uh, draft of history? Uh, is it E, to impact the legitimacy of this Supreme Court, legitimacy of this government, legitimacy of Brett Kavanaugh. Is it F, some combination, or all or none of the above?
1: Well, of course, it's all or none of the above. Or it's all of the above. It, and, uh, but let's, let's not do that dodge. I, I, I respect your question, so let's focus in on it. Um, I think combination can be stopped. I believe that from the start. If you don't begin with that basic premise, then... Um, we're already so far down the, the path of diminished and undermined system checks and balances that we ought to be sending up you know, the red flares and the alarm bells. How can it be blocked? Of course, you hold uh, 49 Democrats uh, in place as, as opponents of this nomination. That's hard. I understand that there are swing Democrats, but also – you uh reach out to at least one perhaps two republicans and of course the thinking on that is susan collins and lisa murkowski Collins from maine murkowski from alaska now uh how do you do that do you do that with a traditional campaign of opposing a supreme court nominee yes that can be a part of it of course all the issues that that all sorts of groups want to bring forward are important issues of choice lgbtq rights affirmative action Worker rights, environmental protections, defending the administrative state from the assaults that someone like Kavanaugh, other members of this court might advance. Voting rights advocates, of course, all those issues have to be front and center. But if we're to take this that that last step to kind of pull together a coalition that might actually block this nomination, we have to put on top of that, or with that, you know, counsel not on top of, but literally as a part of that argument, a, the premise this guy really is dangerous, yeah. right? Not just for the all the concerns that you and I have, right? But we might say to someone, even a conservative friend, do you really want this radically expansive view of an unaccountable presidency? And remember, what Kavanaugh has said is, is, is deeply troubling because it's this notion of placing a president above the law. And he knows how troubling it is. In his law review article, as an example, and I know we'll go into it deeper in a moment, but in that article, he acknowledged people are going to be uncomfortable with this. People are going to say, oh, you know, this is putting a president above the law. And he said, no, 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 that's not the case. It just delays accountability right. Right? during the course of a presidency. Well, with all due respect, when you are talking about someone who holds the most powerful position, arguably, in the world, you're going to delay accountability for one year, two years,
2: three years, four years? Yeah, after After Without a decision doubt, to stay in or, stay or get out of NATO has been made, after the world has decided whether the dollar is going to remain the, the world's reserve currency, after health care has been decided for millions of Americans, after basic freedoms of women have been decided for ad infinitum, after all the myriad decisions to raid the environment have been made. Yeah, I get why justice delayed, just delayed is justice denied.
1: Brother, if I could add one final thing on that after he's pardoned himself and everybody around
2: him. And let's get to that. So so what's interesting, well, so first to understand who this guy is and, and because of the robes and because of history and because of even previous courts who felt differently and because of our education in high school and college, thinking of the Supreme Court as a different branch of government that was less political because of its lifetime appointment. I think we miss that the appointees to the Supreme Court by Republican presidents have been operatives. And there has never been an appointee that I can remember who's more obviously an operative of the right wing, than of the political movement. I don't mean merely of an ideological set of jurisprudence. I mean of the political power apparatus that right now governs the country, that Brett Kavanaugh has built his career as an operative of that movement. Say again, those quick bullet points, on that, that make it, or, or disabuse me and the listeners of the of the notion that I just offered, if you don't think he's an operative? Of course he's an operative.
1: <laughs> look, I mean, it's a given. Look, this is a guy who was involved in, a, in the Bush v. Gore recount fight of 2000 as regards to Florida, the contested Florida election. I don't look about that fight. Uh, if you look at the legal shenanigans and frankly, the, the games that were played, but, but the word game is perhaps an inappropriate term. The, the, the really unimaginable interventions that were made by Jeb Bush and his political allies and appointees, by the lawyers that surrounded the Bush team, and ultimately by a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court that shut down an absolutely necessary recount of the votes in the state that would decide the presidential election. I mean, this guy was at the mid; He wasn't the leader of it, mind you. He's a young, young lawyer. But he was you know, in the heart of that thing. And, and you begin with that, right? And then you take the next step. He joined the Bush White House. Uh, you, you can find it. I don't have to describe it myself. Just go you know, look up the pictures of, of Kavanaugh and Carl Rove with their arms around one another. Understand that this was a guy walking the hallways and nodding and winking and and talking with the likes of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush at a time when this administration was advancing wild assaults on our civil liberties, when it was promoting the Patriot Act and all sorts of other interventions, but also when we now know they were involved in a massive expansion of government Uh, spying at the national security state.
2: And he was involved in all of it. We're talking to John Nichols of The Nation. We're going to break in just a moment. So the point here is that, yeah, it still matters to talk about. Uh, What John Nichols offers, it matters because it could still be blocked. I offer that needs to be talked about because there needs to be a wider and deeper movement, understanding and appreciation for a long-term commitment to democracy as it manifests itself with the courts. We've got to care more about the courts. But also the people, as you're sharing thoughts with friends as we're preaching to the choir and hopefully inspiring the choir to sing, and also hopefully getting some passersby who care about democracy and want to preserve it. The uh, notion that it is ju- he is merely an operative, maybe merely weakens that he is in fact an operative, that he worked to impeach Clinton, that he worked to elect Bush, and also now his views have changed. We're going to stick with John Nichols after this break so that we can talk about that Law Review article at least for a few minutes. John Nichols, stay with us. Listeners, stay with us. I'm Jeff. This is the Tom Hartman Show. Democracy is still sort of a thing. And so we're glad that you're listening.
0: Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the, one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never th- used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim. It's lightweight. It's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a you know a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes, and it it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a the perfect two minute clean. So check this thing out, and it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much much smaller than your than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. You're listening to Tom
2: Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. On the phone back with us, John Nichols of The Nation wrote the article. Brett Kavanaugh once argued that the sitting president should be above the law. We've covered why it matters for us to talk about, both to challenge the nomination and to educate a movement about why courts matter and educate it further. And also because this guy is a Republican operative, not merely a conservative jurist, but a right-wing operative. But now he had an interesting turn after spending is after making his bones by going after Bill Clinton and trying to limit the uh, Clinton's ability to stop an investigation during his presidency. He then wrote after working for Bush, he then wrote an article saying, oh, I think the president should be above the law or at least not subject to. To investigation, John Nichols, what was the what were the basic points of that article, and did it surprise you that he held both positions—both let's go after Clinton and let's not go after presidents anymore?
1: No, it didn't particularly surprise me. I, I, I think that the effort to take down Clinton in the 1990s was a pretty convoluted initiative that uh, began on certain issues and then kind of evolved to others, and and a lot of. Republican operatives and young Republican lawyers joined into that, and Kavanaugh was a part of it, certainly not the lead of it. His critical formative experience was in the Bush White House. And remember, the Bush White House uh, was a White House that really looked at ways to expand presidential powers. One of the things that people had forgotten about, uh, not I'm sure not you and many of your listeners, but a lot of folks have, is that the Bush White House really expanded the notion of so-called signing statements, yep. and that was... When a law was passed, the president would sign it. It was popular law, but then the president would attach a, a letter or a statement that went along with it uh, that said, "Yeah, you know, this is the law, but you know, here's how it should be interpreted. I.e., here's what should be done, what shouldn't be done, how we should understand it, etc." That's an incredible, you know, overstep by by the president saying, "Yeah, Congress passed this law, and now I'm going to tell you what really, what the law really is as one individual." And, and again and again, you saw uh, these sorts of abuses of power. They liked doing that, frankly. I mean, they obviously did. But beyond that, they began to formulate a concept of a unitary presidency or of an enlarged presidency. And, and frankly, Democrats and Republicans have fallen into the trap of thinking, you know, yeah, we ought to give the president a whole bunch of power to really kind of get things done, right? Well— If that becomes our thinking, and particularly if that thinking is supported and sustained by the Supreme Court, when these issues come to the court, because ultimately the court's where you're going to resolve differences between Congress and the White House and between our our different branches of government, if that becomes really a driving force idea, a central idea on the Supreme Court, then you have tipped the balance of our entire system against Congress and against, you know, some sort of genuine separation of powers, a genuine checks and balances. Why does that become significant? Well, Kavanaugh himself says, oh, you know, I'm talking about, you know, exempting presidents from, you know, all these legal investigations, stuff like that. But the power of impe- impeachment will still exist. Well, my friend, if we, the more and more we diminish Congress, the more and more we weaken Congress, the less likely Congress does its basic oversight to be. impeachment is certainly a part of that but i cannot begin to tell you how dangerous this is to tip that balance so much that the president
2: really is a first among equals john nichols the articles in the nation brett kavanaugh once argued the sitting president should be above the law john thanks for joining us thanks for having me this is the tom hartman show i'm jeff The Tom Hartman Program. The term conspiracy theory has come to mean, in common parlance, that something is a fishy idea, not a fishy conduct, but in fact that the person offering the idea is being fishy. What conspiracy means is actually just an agreement, a plan among people, they don't share with a lot of other people. That is roughly speaking in secret. That happens all the time. It happens every day. And I don't say that because I think that there's weird stuff being done to make it rain when otherwise it wouldn't rain. I mean that in you do that a lot. In a surprise party that you plan. In something that you're going to do at your job to release a new product or to let go a team member. Agreements happen all the time without other people knowing them. And in fact, in the halls of power, they happen also all the time. And very often they have consequence. And theorizing about them, rather than being poo-pooed, should be analyzed like any other hypothesis, based on facts, analyzed and evaluated for whether one story seems more plausible and lines up with the facts better than some other story, some other conspiracy theory, because it's always a conspiracy theory. Unless you believe that everything everyone says is always transparent. And we know that that is absurd. Jonathan Shate just wrote an article. Might've been working on it for a while. It's been making the rounds of the internet. We are honored to have him here. And in it, He says, what if it's worse than you think? What if what Glenn Greenwald has called pathological, the concern about Russian interference with this White House, with this president, with this government, and with these recent elections, what if it's as bad as you can imagine and worse than you think? What if there's a 20% chance of that, a 10% chance of that? What might that story look like and why would it matter? Jonathan Chait joins us now this is our moment for conspiracy theory. And by that, I mean hypothesizing about what people might have done without telling everybody else what they were doing. Jonathan, hello. Jonathan, talk to us about the article. What prompted you to write it?
3: Well, I've been following this story from the beginning. Um, in 2016, summer of 2016, not many people took seriously the notion that Russia was doing anything untoward um, with relation to Trump or the election. The notion that they were, you know, feeling the election at all was pretty far out. And nobody took it seriously. In fact, the initial reports about the hacking of the DNC um, just assumed that Russia was just trying to get more information and was not trying to help anybody in the election. So as we've learned more, people have grown more and more accepting of the idea that, that, that Russia was helping Trump and, and, and even that, that Trump was welcoming that help just to some level. Um, but... I you know, I think there's a chance that it just, it just goes even deeper than we think and we or at least we don't know how far it goes and there's been a, an assumption that we do know, that is an assumption that at, at every stage that it's only going a little bit further than we think and we keep getting surprised. So I wanna to try to responsibly game out in this article what it would look like if it goes farther by assembling, you know, all the all the facts and, and being reasonable about it and not saying well, this can only be explained by that. And if we know that, then therefore that, and therefore another thing. That's how you view a conspiracy theory that, that goes awry. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories that, that make those kinds of errors. So I'm just trying to use both of the publicly verified sources and, and, and just put it together like, what what do we think? What, what are the probabilities? What are the possibilities? And, and, and how deep could it go? So that's what I'd like to do.
2: And by how deep? It could go. You include the, and, may, and focus on, I guess, the relationship. And you say, what if the next summit, I think that it was, uh, what, what if the next summit between Trump and Putin is not merely a, a discussion among uh, foreign leaders or, or national leaders, but what if it is in fact a, a a source meeting with his handler, Putin being the handler. And you say that there is a chance and I know it, it is hard. I mean, the, the challenge with the big lie, the channel, challenge of the big deceit is it's so hard to believe that, it, that the good news isn't true because it disrupts our cognitive dissonance so very much. And I think that's why your story is important. New York Magazine is what it's in. I sometimes get it confused with the New Yorker. Can, correct me if I'm wrong. I am, okay. I, Although I've lived in New York, I don't, I, I don't see the world through the spoon of Manhattan. Okay. The uh, And you make the case, or at least yes, hypothesize... It, it is
3: New York Magazine. You're right. It is New the, York, not New Yorker.
2: Thank you very much. And you make the case that, or, or at least put out the hypothesis, that the relationship between Russia and Trump, that Putin and Trump, it might not have, it not only may not have been accidental, it may have been, or it may not have been recent. And in fact, it may have started in 1987. Make that case. Well, this is just an odd coincidence that hasn't gotten enough attention.
3: It's probably just an odd coincidence. Um, which is that People always say, well, Donald Trump has believed this stuff about America's allies for forever. But he hasn't really believed forever. And what you're seeing you know, with him attacking NATO is not what he's believed forever. He's only believed it since 1987. And in the 1987, he went to Moscow after having been sort of courted and flattered a little bit by some Russian officials um, in, in New York. He went and visited uh, Moscow. Luke Harding, a Guardian journalist, has a really good book that, that gets into this in more detail. So he goes to Moscow, talks about building – Something in Moscow for the first time, which didn't happen, um, um, has this great meeting with 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 the Soviets, and then comes back and within two months is talking about running for president for the first time, and is paying uh, more than a hundred thousand dollars of his own money to to pay full fight, full page ads attacking America's allies for the first time, and it's a familiar message now saying why are we protecting them? Why are we spending our money to protect them? And of course, what he didn't say in there is that we are protecting them from Russia and the Soviets, and and this did align very closely with with Soviet foreign policy goals and Russian foreign policy goals to this day of splitting the U.S. away from its allies. So again, probably a coincidence, but you know why
2: do you, why do you probably, say do you say probably a coincidence to maintain journalistic integrity and not to sound too beyond the the, the current state of the conversation, or do you say probably because you actually think it's probably because I don't know. It being a coincidence doesn't necessarily seem any more or less likely than it not being a coincidence.
3: You know, if I had to bet my own money, I would probably say it's a coincidence. But I don't know. I mean, I just don't. But you're right to put some pressure on that. I mean, I can't assess the odds. It's really, really hard to say. You're right. I mean, I I, I said what if it's 10 or 20 percent, but that's kind of throwing the figure out there. I, I really don't know. It would not be beyond Soviet intelligence to put a bug in someone's ears, to 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 encourage them to take up these themes, to say because they did like to identify people who have a future and future leaders and try to gain different kinds of influence over them. Sometimes with blackmail, sometimes with bribes, sometimes um, with other forms of influence, or maybe you know, it could have just been something as simple as flattering him and playing to his ego and, and saying, like, America really needs a leader. Who's going to say this and that? You know, um, that's a big it's a big hole out there that you could fill. It, 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 that could easily be the case.
2: The Because to me, when I look at the facts as they stack up and I'll offer a few facts and I ask you that pile on, but we can, we can also mm-hmm. try to tear it down. But let's try to pile on some facts. So, so mm-hmm. Donald Trump comes and starts making uh, starts making pronouncements about foreign policy that are in alignment with the desires of the Russian state yeah. that relate to the United States weakening its alliances with its key allies and making those, and, and it, as he is going now, similarly to how he's going now, uh, to say, to cr- criticize NATO, to criticize uh, Canada, uh, to praise the separation of uh, forces that want to separate coalition power. And that he started doing that two months after visiting Russia. And then now you have it very clear that there were in fact, Russian bots that every intelligence agency were saying, were trying to elect Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And you have, I don't know, a dozen people, three people somewhere between at least a half a dozen people with Russian ties, some degree of Russian ties who were appointed to his administration that his campaign manager was an operative for it may, remind people of the Manafort connection. Cause now it's oh, all Manafort, Trump, Russia, blah. And then maybe we forget I, I, it, because at some point we start piling this stuff up and, and coincidence feels like much less likely than not coincidence, but remind people of Ma- Manafort and other key details. You think people might be forgetting. Well, sure. Let me, let me pull out even more because to say that
3: Russia is interfering in an election and forging covert ties with a party here, it sounds much less crazy if you understand that they have done this time and time and time again. There's no controversy. This. They've done this in more than half a dozen elections in, in Europe, um, building ties with right-wing parties that they see as having some kind of common ideological goal, and often courting the leaders of those parties with, with, with bribes. Um, and in, in, in one of the clearest cases is an election in Ukraine, where Russia had a strong interest, and they backed a, a pro-Russian party and, and backed his political interests. Um, and the person who ran this campaign is Paul Manafort. So Paul Manafort is running a pro-Russian political operation in Ukraine immediately before he comes to run Donald Trump's
2: campaign. So, so, not, so only, last... not only do they have a tradition... A habit of getting involved in other elections, but they get a, and and implanting the person that they want. But they have used Paul Manafort to do that very thing, and then Paul Manafort, by maybe not coincidence, ends up being working for the Trump administration. We're about to go to right, break.
3: Same guy. Well, no, he's not in the administration. No, he was never in, not administration, in the administration. Excuse me, the campaign. Yeah,
2: the campaign. So the uh, pl- plug the article. Where can people check it out? What's your Twitter feed? Mine's Jefferson D. Smith, uh, and and I have posted it. What's yours? Where can people check it out?
3: My. Twitter feed is at Jonathan Schaitt, um, Jonathan with an A-N-C-H-A-I-T, and nymag.com. Is the-
2: All right. Hang with us, listeners. We're going to be back with Jonathan Shape We're going to be back with your phone calls. I'm Jefferson Smith. Fun stuff, except scary. And we've got to stay together to be less scared. This is
0: Tom Hartman show. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially, improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And it's patented, split-back, lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's Perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1 844 4XCHAIR. This chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code Tom, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. Xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. Jonathan Shade is with us. His article in New York Magazine,
2: hypothesizing of what if it's worse than we think? What if the relationship between Donald Trump and Putin is that between a subject and his handler? So you have the Manafort campaign. Link, what other facts that you think people miss as we're choosing between these ideas of it's just a grand coincidence or in fact it is a grand conspiracy?
3: So, first of all, let me just back up and say that by Handler, I don't think people should think that um, Trump is a Manchurian candidate, that he's you know speaking privately in Russian with Putin um, is operating under direct control. Russian intelligence influences people at lots of different levels, Um, and it could be something as simple as flattery. There could well be blackmail or financial leverage, um, because now to get into your your question, um, there's clearly been a lot of Russian money. Both of Trump's sons admitted that they had gotten a lot of money from Russia, and this started happening after – traditional banks would no longer lend money to Donald Trump because he stiffs he his creditors. He doesn't pay them back. So he, he gets a big infusion of Russian funds. We don't know the whole map of this because he doesn't release his, his tax returns. But um, that's a pretty big source of, of, of leverage. And you need to understand that Russia doesn't invest solely to maximize its returns. Russia um, invest money um, with political goals in mind. And the Russian economy is like this hybrid of of state control and free market where you've got these state-linked oligarchs who control everything. And so they like to dangle um, these kind of can't-lose deals before people um, so you can basically hide a bribe underneath the cover of a legitimate business transaction.
2: Yeah, and they they have – and amplifying that – Many Russian oligarchs got their dough because of relationships with the Russian state and Russian intelligence, and not only because if they violated the desires of the Russian state, they would have had it, but also even more often, more closely than that. Uh, the, so so what, else, what else do you think people are missing?
3: Um, you know, I make a great deal out of the things that John Brennan, the former CIA head, has said publicly. Um, I put that pretty high in my piece. I think it got far too little attention. So first of all, Brennan was um, briefed by European intelligence agencies who, who, who recorded conversations of Russian officials talking about the Trump campaign and their ties to the Trump campaign. Um, so the Europeans hear the Russians talking about the Trump campaign and, and somehow in some level of involvement. They go to Washington and brief John Brennan, the CIA director, about these conversations. John Brennan has has not said what he heard. Those recordings have not come out. But Brennan has said, first of all, um, basically that Trump or someone with him is, is committing treason. He talked about how you know people go down the treasonous path and they realize it's too late uh, that they're on the treasonous path. And he said that he thinks Putin has influence over Donald Trump. He has some, some kind of blackmail, something over his head. Um, so to relate to what you are saying before about a conspiracy theory, one of the ironies here is that Conspiracy theories often say that the government is hiding something from us, and the, the, the organ of government that's most frequent
2: target of conspiracy
3: theories is the CIA. But here, the actual head of the CIA is the one who's
4: promoting this theory.
2: Or, or the <laughs> he's the one. The he's the one. You have the CIA saying, "Yeah, there is in fact in this case a conspiracy." Jonathan Shay, New York Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your article. All right, thanks for having me. This is Tom Hartman Show. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What's up, family? My name is Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Big question today, Supreme Court, state of democracy. Why are we trying to disrupt our most important international alliances? How is it connected to the investigation of the White House? And how do we make sure our elections actually yield the results that reflect, to a better degree, the will of the people? To connect a couple of those dots and to help talk about election security, Norman Solomon from Roots Action. The website is rootsaction.org. Norman Solomon joins us now. Norman, hello. Norman, can you hear me? I
4: cannot. Hello?
2: Norman, can you hear me now?
4: No, I cannot hear you. Oh. I Unless you can hear me
2: here. I can hear you. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, all right. So apparently you can hear me. Anyway, we're now talking. We'll pretend the last seven seconds didn't happen. It is wonderful to hear your voice. Go ahead. You want to talk about election security. Uh, If people are concerned about the state of American elections, what ought we be doing and what good news is happening?
4: Well, to me, the good news is happening, and I'm with RootSection.org. A statement was issued this morning, an open letter uh, published by The Nation magazine, which really gets beyond the false choices uh, that have been really propagated for the last 18 months. And those false choices have said to people one way or the other uh, that either we protect our elections or we uh, heighten tensions with uh, Russia Hmm. and move in a more confrontational mode that could include a military confrontation. And uh, the nation on their website today uh, has published an open letter by more than 20 people of uh, great, in most cases, renowned in cultural and political circles across a wide swath of the political spectrum saying that that's a false choice, that whether somebody is uh, thousands and thousands of miles away or down the street, they should not be able to hack into voter registration files. They should not be able to uh, intrude upon uh, any part of the digital election process in this country. At the same time, we don't want to be moving towards uh, military confrontation between the two nuclear superpowers. So uh, to me, that's very encouraging uh, because the polarized debate in this country has, under the rubric of Russiagate, moved us more and more, frankly, towards a greater risk of uh, nuclear apocalypse, which, of course, virtually anybody uh, who is sane doesn't want.
2: And so you're saying if we disconnect our criticism of Russia, disconnect even our criticism of the president from the idea that our elections ought to be honest, that maybe that would help advance the argument that elections should be honest without ramping up how is that—correct uh, me if I, if I misconstrued your point, but how is that being received by folks out in the world? Well, the, te- the
4: beginning of the title is Common Ground, and it's really, um, as you uh, allude to, an attempt to move beyond these sort of stalemate uh, discussions uh, that have gotten locked in in the last 18 or 20 months in this country— And uh, we're now speaking just a few hours after the nation published this open letter. And what remains to be seen is the response, but it's already been republished by a number of other websites. Uh, As we speak, a petition drive is launching, uh, which people can join in at the nation website to read and then act upon the open letter in support of it. At RootsAction.org, we also, uh, during this hour, actually, are launching the petition campaign. Uh, partners with us, along with the nation and Roots Action are three other organizations, Just Foreign Policy, World Beyond War, and a group that I know uh, many of Tom Hartman's listeners uh, know full well uh, through Tom's uh, great coverage of them and support of them, and that is the organization Progressive Democrats of America. So, I think it's quite auspicious that these five groups have moved ahead and are uh, really trying to, uh, so to speak, take the bull and often the BS by the horns and say, look, we, of course, want to secure the digital uh, well-being and security of our election process. Uh, We do not want to use that concern in any way to move us uh, closer to a, a confrontation between uh, countries that each have several thousand nuclear weapons in their arsenals. And uh, I would encourage people uh, to take a look at the open letter. Uh, you may want to mention to them, uh, Jefferson, some of the signers, because we really have a, a quite a, a startling array of people who uh, have really taken a firm stand here. Uh, one of the most prominent who actually um, has uh, been a very strong supporter of Hillary Clinton is uh, Gloria Steinem. And yeah, I see. I see the. Ones, li- uh, I see some
2: list: uh, Noam Chomsky, John Dean, uh, Bill Richardson, former governor uh, Walter Mosley, Valerie Plame. Uh, there are others as well. Who's the audience for the letter?
4: It's really wide ranging. I mean, we have uh, some Republicans who are signers, former Republicans, as you mentioned, John Dean, the uh, who who was the uh, Nixon White House uh, counsel, uh, and really the audience is anybody who is concerned about the future. I know that sounds broad. But the reality is it's people who uh, are deeply concerned about reports of um, election interference and also those who are deeply concerned about, but may have shunted off in the side of their minds, concern about uh, the real risk of uh, nuclear annihilation through uh, a confrontation militarily between the world's two leading superpowers. And I think, frankly, we have forgotten To a large extent what the consequences of nuclear war would be. I find it very striking that the wonderful upsurge of activism uh, to uh, deal with the climate emergency that uh, the Trump regime refuses to acknowledge and that uh, progressives and others uh, are trying to uh, confront this climate emergency very rarely do we hear about the scientifically proven phenomenon of nuclear winter, which would be the result, not in decades, but in a matter of weeks, uh, of a nuclear war between the two superpowers. And what that entails is basically ending the viability of agriculture on this planet. So I think we need to recalibrate and in many ways uh, see the see the uh, forest, not just the trees. The, the, the trees are the onslaught of news about Russia. And uh, the forest is what's at stake in the big picture in U.S.-Russian relations. And uh, when we get that big picture, we can get off this war hawk mania that has uh, so engulfed the mass media. And I'm not just talking about, or particularly talking about right-wing media. I'm talking about uh, formerly very level-headed people like Rachel Mandel on MSNBC, who has behaved, in my personal opinion, irresponsibly, to try to jack up this uh, hysteria, this uh, frenzy against Russia.
2: So what would be, if if one were concerned about not only general interference in American elections, but in particular Russian interference in American elections, if one were concerned not only with various influences on the current President of the United States, but in fact Vladimir Putin interference in relationships and influence on this President of the United States, How would you suggest that a responsible uh, commentator or journalist comport themselves? Uh, Talk about it more, talk about Uh, it less, talk about it differently.
4: Yeah, I think it means dealing with facts, not as uh, connecting dots that are very speculative, and also uh, putting in perspective the fact that, yes, uh, Vladimir Putin is a violator of human rights. The United States, under Obama and Trump, has been embracing and aiding governments such as Saudi Arabia and Egypt, which engage in torture and by any measure are far worse in human rights. Let's also remember uh, that the people who were running the Soviet Union during the 1960s, um, Kosygin and Brezhnev, uh, make uh, would have made Putin look like uh, Thomas Jefferson, a, a real democratic uh, leader. Uh, Brezhnev and Kosygin ran uh, essentially a police state. Uh, called the Soviet Union, and yet President Lyndon Johnson, in what was called the spirit of Glassboro, a little bit over 50 years ago, uh, held a much-heralded summit meeting uh, with Kosygin, and it, it was rightly seen as a step away from uh, the nuclear brink. So I think it's a matter of putting all this in perspective.
2: And 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 so the takeaway is nuclear is bad. And therefore, is it be nicer to Russia or is it be more focused in one's critique or is it focus on sanctity of elections and focus on why Donald Trump is bad and say rush the word Russia fewer times? What's the therefore on the for the activist, for the elected official, for the journalist?
4: I think that the takeaway, the therefore, is that we've got to get away from false choices. We've got to get to, as the title of this open letter says, that's on the nation website. We've got to get to common ground where we can take effective action to safeguard U.S. elections, and at the same time, not out of the goodness of our heart, but for future generations that we want to have lives ahead, we need to improve relations between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, After all, if we want democracy to flourish in our country, uh, that can't happen if our country doesn't exist after a nuclear war.
2: Is there... It's interesting. I'm, I'm finding myself conflicted as I listen and wanting to pause on offering my own opinion and continue to investigate, but maybe even investigate sort of alternative viewpoints. Is there any risk that you see that a general, hey, calm down about Russia, could remove an important piece of the investigation of what is happening with the disruption of NATO alliances, the disruption of Brexit, the, the disruption of the uh, small L liberal uh, social order? that came together after World War II.
4: I think the far greater danger is the momentum of where we are because if the saying goes, if you keep moving in a direction, you're likely to get there. And so we, we need to be real about the direction we're moving in in terms of these confrontations. This in no way means there should be a halt to the investigations. The Mueller investigation should continue. Uh, we need to recognize that a lot of this on Capitol Hill is politicized.
2: Thanks, but- Norman. They're about to catch you off and I appreciate the time. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program. That was Norman Solomon, RuthAction.org, the website. I'm Jeff. We're back. Victor from WCPT, Ain't Afraid of Me, Chicago. What's up?
4: Hey, buddy. You're doing a great job, and
3: the program is moving right along, but we forgot two important facts. One is that... Uh, Donald Trump never did sign off on the sanctions against Russia. I know. Number two, um, the Mueller team has already gotten 13 indictments and five guilty pleas from Russian operatives and people that are involved with Russia and the Trump campaign. And to
4: to believe that there is no influence by Putin uh, on the old president Trump is just delusional, Are you
2: there? I'm here.
3: Yeah, it's just delusional. And uh, another point, Russia does not have a nuclear arsenal since the 80s. It cannot maintain a nuclear arsenal since the 60s.
2: We're going to have to take your point and leave it there, because what I've got to say is thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to the team. Thank you to Sean and to Shira and to Nate. Thank you to Tom, who will be back tomorrow. My name is Jefferson Smith. Thank you, Democracy. And again, let me leave you with this that ultimately a lot of this stuff isn't anybody's job, so it has to be all of our jobs. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. And with you, democracy is possible, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. We'll be back soon. I want to say thanks to everybody. Tom will be back tomorrow. I'm Jefferson Smith twitter handle jefferson d smith thanks for all the callers and thank you democracy i'll be back friday Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two,
1: three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're gonna pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.